This message first aired on the radio on September 17, 2003. Uh, we have been studying an overview of the scripture. We're spending, we're taking our time with it. We're through 15 weeks of study. We've been about, oh, maybe 12 weeks in the overview of the dispensations of God, and we've spent perhaps nearly three weeks of, of this program, three weeks' worth of messages in this program, just in the current dispensation that we're taking up, which is the dispensation of the law. We've slowed down, and we're taking our time to go through it because it is such an involved dispensation, and I guess I'm taking opportunity to, in doing a broad overview, to drill down a little bit and do a little application and as I get as I get taken up with certain themes, especially for example, the life of Saul, I get taken up a little bit. I just uh, slow down as I'm going through here. We're in the transition time, the life of Samuel. Samuel is a transition person because he is the last of the judges, and he anoints the kings. So he's the transition prophet that God put in place to bring about kingship in Israel. And you remember that Israel first selects the king after its own heart. And then God finds a man after his own heart. And we're coming into the, maybe the bittersweet section of the rise of the kings as we're today midway, actually late way through the first book of the kings. We could say there are four books of kings, or we can go with the conventional King James naming of the books, and that would be First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. We're in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel today, and you may remember that yesterday we left off as we're beginning to see the demise of Saul, and so we have a bittersweet topic because the topic is a two-sided coin. We Maybe we say the tail side or the downward side is the, is the slow demise and destruction of Saul, and we don't do well to place an unqualified man in leadership. In the church of God, which is the church which is his body, the place of leadership, the leadership position that is sanctified by God in the local church is a position of elder. Really, there's no other, there's no other position in the local church that's one of, of leadership except elder. Now, some may say, well, there are deacons. If there are deacons today, if there are needs for deacons today, these, these would be men who do not answer to the deacons selected to oversee the political problems of the Hellenistic Jews in the Church of Jerusalem, but these would be, what we'd say, elders in training, because the Scripture says, let an elder be tried first. And so you might say a deacon today is an elder being tried till he's a proven man, in which case he fits the qualifications, which we won't go through in detail, but just to say that that is the only position of leadership in the local church today, according to the scriptures, is a position of elder. Now, an elder must be able to teach. So an elder must be a qualified teacher. A teacher in the church does not need to be an elder. So the position of leadership requires one is able to teach, among other things. And you do not do a man's service. No one did Saul's service by raising him up as an unqualified fellow to be king. He's the people's choice, but they didn't do him any favors. And the result in his life is devastating, as he cannot withstand that he is not a man of faith enough. 
He's not a man of enough. He is not enough a man of faith to withstand the testings uh, that he undergoes as a king of Israel, and he slides into the worst kind of sins. Especially, he slides into envy, and then he despises God's servant David, and uh, he's everything we'd like not to see about ourselves. But he's so much one of us. He's so much like we are at our worst. And we'll see that that's the tails side of the coin, or that's the that's kind of the dim side. Now, as the light of Saul dims into darkness, as the light that's in Saul becomes darkness, and how great a darkness it becomes, we see the rising star of David. We see God's man after his own heart. And so we left off yesterday that Saul has been told by Samuel, that he's been disqualified. Samuel does the thing that Saul won't do, and that is he puts to death Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Remember, Amalekites represent the old flesh, and Saul in his behavior represents the believer who is living after the flesh. He's living, loving the world, living in the world, and living after the flesh, and he gets the result of that which is a very sad thing. We left that Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord said unto Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, provided me a king among his sons. And, of course, Jesse in the line of Boaz, You had Boaz and Ruth in the book of Ruth, which we just skipped right over. And then you have Obed, and you have now Jesse, Bethlehem, the house of bread. And you have Jesse's eight sons. So Jesse's a man with eight sons and two daughters. We'll see here. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you. I will show thee what thou shalt do, and thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem, house of bread. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? Now here's a, here's a town of some measure of respect and regard. Here's a town, Bethlehem, where the elders, the old men of the town, are... Uh, at least have proper respect, because here's the prophet of God, the judge of Israel coming, and they want to know if the word that he brings is one of judgment for them, or is it one of peace? And they're happy to hear that he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man seeth. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now we've been quoting that verse before we read it here over the last couple of days. And we want to see that Samuel, the prophet, when he sees this goodly man, this Eliab, big, strong boy of Jesse, firstborn, he thinks this must be the king of Israel. He looks like the king of Israel. And the Lord tells Samuel these important words, 
man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I remember telling my boys when it, when it came time to dress for a meal or when it came to dress for work, I would tell them this, well, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. So it's your heart before God that really matters. So I would quote this verse, this, and then I would tell them, but on the other hand, man looks on the outward appearance. So I would read it this way. Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart, but man looks on the outward appearance. And so there's nothing the matter with keeping a good outward appearance, and nothing whatsoever. In fact, there's nothing wrong with organizing yourself for the mere sake of appearance when it is not intended to deceive or when it is not neglecting the inward part. In other words, there's nothing wrong with you obeying conventions of appearance. There's nothing wrong with you fitting in if you have a clean conscience and a good heart before God. Just remember that it's man who looks on the outward appearance. So frankly, a situation calls for you to dress up, dress up. Man's looking on the outward appearance. If the situation calls for you to dress down, dress down, because man looks on the outward appearance. There are two truths here. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. But don't be deceived by the outward appearance. Of course, today, the outward appearance is all that is substance. In fact, we've even had philosophers, pop psychologists mainly, not really philosophers. For example, we had, when I was young, this fellow Marshall McLuhan, who tried to teach us that the medium is the message, and that is that content doesn't matter, and so it was form over substance. Now, we know from good design, for example, that, that function comes first and form should follow, but today man is no different than he's ever been, and he looks on the outward appearance. But God said, don't, don't judge by what you see on the outward appearance. Wait for my word, because I look upon the heart. That's what he told, that's what he told Samuel here. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel, and God said, Neither has the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel altogether, and Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. Your seven sons, I guess God hasn't chosen any of them. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are these all thy children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. Of course, this is David. He's out keeping the sheep. He's busy. He's with the sheep. Do you want to know where your spiritual leaders can be found? They're found with the sheep. And here is David as a contrast to Saul. You remember Saul? He was the loser of the donkeys. But David is the keeper of of the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, and I'm in 1 Samuel 16:11, he says to Jesse, "Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down until he comes hither." And he sent, he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. So he's a nice-looking fellow. You see, it's not there's nothing wrong with being a nice-looking fellow. It's fine to be a good-looking fellow, but it's not enough. It's not enough. And besides that, a man looks on the outward appearance and everybody has their their idea, their own idea. I think everybody's a good-looking person to somebody. So here, David is apparently good-looking to a lot of people. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. This is the one. So here he is. This is the first anointing of David. Really, he's anointed three times. He's anointed by Samuel. 
He's anointed by the men of Judah, his tribe, later, and then not long thereafter, he is anointed by the elders of Israel as he is received by the entire nation. He sent and brought him in. He was ready. He's beautiful. Lord says, anoint this guy. Then Samuel, verse 13, took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit of the Lord troubled him. So here we see the spirit of the Lord coming upon David in his anointing. And at the same time, the spirit of the Lord leaving Saul. And we have a a great transition that takes place in 1 Samuel 16. And in addition to that, not only does the Spirit of the Lord leave Saul, but an evil spirit comes and begins from there on to trouble him. And Saul becomes an extremely troubled person. And I want to tell you something about this. You may be wondering, what, what is this that transpires? Many of the people we see today that are troubled people are not troubled by, quote, psychological problems. I mean, they certainly are psychological problems. Psychology is a compound word meaning the word of the soul or the word concerning the soul or the study of the life of the person. And certainly we have people whose lives or souls are in deep, deep trouble. But proper biblical psychology today is hardly practiced anywhere. In fact, biblical psychology is almost entirely unknown. And where can you find a man of God? Because people that have all this trouble, sometimes it's very serious spiritual trouble. Here we see an evil spirit is troubling Saul. You say, well, that's a figure of speech. No, it isn't. There are evil spirits. They trouble people. There are evil spirits all over the place. We have plenty of evil spirits troubling plenty of people today in our society. Plenty of them. Just because it's not much talked about doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And do we lack men of God? Yes, we do. We lack men of God with spiritual vision who understand how to deal with these kind of problems. Because our society has now learned to take troubled people to shrinks that make them even more troubled, drug them, dope them, take them to doctors, take them to lawyers, take them to psychobabblers, take them everywhere but to a man of God. Well, Saul is troubled. He's going to remain troubled. He's going to go from bad to worse. It's a pathetic and sorry thing, and no man will give to him. He's just in such a terrible state. All he has to do is turn to God and be cleansed from his evil works, but he won't do that. Well, my friend, will you do that? You think about that, and we'll come back after this song and a brief message. Well, we're looking at the demise of Saul. Most people don't realize that the rise of David at the time where he faces Goliath really has to do with the demise of Saul, and that Saul is tormented at this time by an evil spirit. But before David becomes the one to defeat Goliath, or Goliath, as he's called elsewhere in other parts of the world, this interesting thing happens to Saul where he's troubled by an evil spirit. His servants have to tell him that's what's going on with him, and Saul's servants say unto him, Behold, an evil spirit from God troubles you. 
Let our Lord now command thy servants before thee to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp, and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon you that he will play with his hand and you'll be well. And Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is a cunning in playing and a mighty valiant man, a man of war and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. And so Saul sends messengers to Jesse and says, Send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. And, of course, this is what Saul had been doing. He finds a good man, he finds a a valiant man, and he takes him. And so David came to Saul and stood before him. And Saul loved David greatly, and David became Saul's armor-bearer. And I think that's something that we overlook, this, this really tender relationship. And you say, well, Saul hates David later, and he loves him. The ambivalence that marks Saul, the ambivalence toward David, that he both loves him and hates him at the same time, marks the man that Saul is. He's a two-souled man. This is now what the Scripture says that we can find, and we find it very many times, a man of two souls or of two lives. The Bible says a two-souled man, he's unstable in all of his ways. This is now what it means to be an unstable person. And you can't find anyone more unstable, in my opinion, than the Christian who also lives for the world because he's got the double nature. He's got the nature that's for God, and he's got the fallen nature that loves the world, and it's very difficult and hard on a person to conduct this double-mindedness. Translate the King James Version, double-minded the true word of that is double-souled or a two-lived person. And we're just full with these people. Uh, in fact, very, very, very many of us suffer from this malady. It's a spiritual problem and needs to be dealt with in a spiritual way. Well, Saul doesn't deal with his problem. He doesn't come to the fountain. He doesn't come and have the blood of Christ cleanse him from all unrighteousness. He receives what many of us receive, and that is temporary relief from our problems. And that temporary relief happens. It comes to pass. It says that it came to pass in the Scripture that when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. And I suppose I could begin to talk a little bit about music here today. As you know, we've been desiring to select our music for our broadcast. And by the way, I've had tremendous response, very positive response. I haven't had anybody say, don't like your taste in music, don't like your choice in music. But I don't play any music on my show that I know of that's new in any way, whether composition or in production. In fact, the production of the music is all, I suppose, on the order of 15 to 20 years old. But the hymns that I play are quite old wonderful hymns. It's just amazing that we don't hear more of it. I'm getting great response, and yet you go from radio station to radio station, try as you might, you will not find old hymns being played. You won't find stringed music hardly anywhere, or a cappella music. You won't find good harmonies of strings and woodwinds and so forth. Music does make a difference. Music does have a message. Whatever the words may be, the music itself also has a message to it. And you see that when Saul heard the playing of David, who was playing a harp, and he plays this stringed instrument well and softly, that Saul gets relief. 
And do we look to our music? Well, I'll leave that with you. Now we move to a transition. Now we see David, of course, as a servant of Saul, as a young man beloved by Saul, as Saul's armor bearer. And uh, the Philistines are still down the Israelites' throats here. The Philistines still have them pinned in, and they still have them dominated, really. And they're not freed from the Philistines. And we have this famous chapter, chapter 17, where the Philistines have their champion, their representative, Goliath, also called Goliath. And it tells us that the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, Israelites stood on a mountain on the other side. There's a valley between them. And there went a champion out of the camp of the Philistines. This is their hero. And this word here, translated champion, is really a compound word that means the man who is between the two camps or the man who is the the dueler. He's the representative. You may remember, for example, that before we recently invaded Iraq, one of their foreign ministers suggested that Bush and Saddam Hussein just have some kind of contest between themselves, and whoever wins would win. Well, that's the idea here is a duelist. And, of course, the Philistines put forward this guy, their champion, named Goliath of Gath. All right, now it's important he's from Gath, and he is later, we learn, he is of the Rapha or of the Fallen One. So this guy is like an offspring of the Anakims. He's not a human being. His name is Goliath. It says his height was six cubits and a span. Now, six cubits and a span, there are different kinds of cubits. There's a short cubit and a long cubit. I believe this is the long cubit, which is about 25 inches. It's about 25 inches. So six cubits would be two foot six, and a span is about a half a foot. So that's going to be six times two feet plus six inches plus six inches, or 13 feet tall. Okay, maybe I can drive the span number just a little bit to get him to 13 feet, but I believe, uh, I do believe this guy is 13 feet tall, not 12 foot 10 or anything like that. I believe he's 13 feet tall. That's a huge man, 13 feet. I remember being in the Cleveland airport one time, I was walking to my plane, and the Cleveland Cavaliers had somebody uh, there, and uh, I saw this enormous guy. It was Minute Bowl, and the guy was seven foot six, and he had to duck from the signs that were hanging from the ceiling. The guy was seven foot six. I thought I was in the presence of an enormous giant, very thin fellow, but extremely tall. I won't say I looked like a grasshopper in his sight, but I was feeling about four foot one. Okay, maybe I was feeling three foot eleven. Uh, this guy was seven foot six. I cannot imagine seeing a guy thirteen feet tall. I mean, he is another nearly six feet taller than that tallest guy I've ever seen. He had a helmet of brass upon his head. So you can imagine the size of this guy's head. I remember another time I was in an airport. I was in the St. Louis airport on a Sunday, and I saw Hulk Hogan seated at the counter. There were just a few of us there waiting for our plane, and one of us was Hulk Hogan, and it wasn't me. And this guy had an enormous head. I was shocked at how huge this man was. I said, by the way, I said, I hear you're a Christian. He says, I got a thing with the man upstairs. So that was his testimony to me. I don't know if that passes for Christian or not, but he did have a thing with the man upstairs. 
So this guy has a helmet of brass upon his head. He's armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And we could go into some of the details about how much this guy weighs and and what kind of armor he has. But just imagine he's 13 feet tall and he's not skinny. I suppose he weighs somewhere around 1,200 pounds, my guess. So, something like that. Maybe maybe he weighs 1,300 pounds. That would be uh, closer to uh, what we would expect from this fellow. And he cried to the armies of Israel and said, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and you the servants to Saul? Pick a man and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, I will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. And now that's the problem with picking the tallest guy to be your leader, because there's always a taller guy. Let's just say Saul was a full seven feet high. He was head and shoulders above all the rest of the Israelites. All of a sudden, he comes up against a guy who's a, who's not head and shoulders taller. He's a whole man taller than everybody else. And so you can see now when you trust the flesh, there's always somebody smarter than you. There's always somebody richer than you. There's always somebody stronger than you. And when you're a really tough guy and you're a great fighter, do you know what that means? That means you are going to keep fighting until you get whipped. That is what it means. When you're a very smart person, and by the way, it's not just people think they're smart. Some people are smart. Let me assure you, you're going to come across somebody smarter than you. So we don't trust in these things, and that's where we learn more from Saul of Tarsus than we learn from Saul of Kish, because Saul of Kish relied on the arm of the flesh. He was not a man of faith. Saul of Tarsus took his pedigree and threw it on the junk heap. He threw it on the trash heap. He turned it into fertilizer, and he spread that fertilizer on the ground that he worked, and he brought forth fruit. So regard your attainments and your abilities properly. So here's this Philistine. He's defying the armies of Israel, and the children of Israel are all scared to death. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse's went and followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah. And you remember, these are the three that were overlooked in the selection of the king of Israel. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. Well, the short version is David was at home with his father, keeping the sheep. And, by the way, keeping the sheep trains you for all manner of spiritual conflict. And that's why when you're in real trouble and you need spiritual help, go to the man who keeps the sheep. Go to the man who keeps the sheep. Now, I don't say just go to any man with a title because that's dangerous. There are all kinds of fellows that are serving themselves and not God. It's hard to find. Today, it's hard to find a man of God with the Word of God. The Word of God is scarce. The man of God may be even scarcer. So you be careful about it. But God always does have his servants. They're around. They're not obvious because they're with the sheep. By the way, they're not hanging around with all the other shepherds. They're with the sheep. 
And Jesse said unto David his son, Take your brothers this food. And he says, Go carry some food to your brothers. They're, they're in the service. They'd like a little treat. They're probably not eating very well. Uh, they've been drafted by Saul. And so David goes. And David, of course, being a young man, he's concerned about the battle. He's wondering, I suppose, as anybody would, well, how's the battle going? And the battle is in array. It's army facing army. And David goes now to his brothers and salutes them. As he's talking with them, it tells us in 1 Samuel 17, Behold, there comes up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, out of the armies of the Philistine, and spoke unto the same words that he spoke before, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel as he come up. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel or tax-free. So now Saul has incented whoever will go fight this Goliath, but he won't go. No, sir, Saul's not going to go. So David said, well, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. Who does this guy think he is? And we know the story. And I won't tell it now, because I won't do it justice. I'd tell it if I had time to do it justice. But we know that David faces the Philistine, and he does it on the basis of faith, by the way. He does it by grace through faith. He said, The Lord has delivered me out of the lion's paw, uh, from the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And uh, he said, I've slain these wild animals that attack the sheep, and I will slay this uncircumcised Philistine. He'll be like one of them who has defying the armies of the living God. And he goes, and you know the story, I trust you do. He picks up five smooth stones, a number of grace. He doesn't need five shots, but Goliath has four brothers, which we'll see later. And you never know, they may rush out. He might need to kill all five of them. And, in fact, if you think about it, the man with a sling who can't miss has got all the edge in the world on the guy, no matter how big he is, that has to throw a spear, and he slays Goliath. And now when he slays Goliath, he becomes a great hero to the children of Israel. And the men of Israel get the victory, and they pursue the Philistines, and the children of Israel, after they chase the Philistines, they spoil the tent of the Philistines. David chops off the head of the Philistine of Goliath, and he brings it into Jerusalem. The amazing thing now is that the people love David because he got the victory. And, of course, that's going to happen. And when he returns from the slaughter of the Philistines, the women are singing a song, and the song they sing is, uh, Saul has slain thousands, and David his ten thousands. And no matter how much Saul loves David, that's too much for him. And now we think of how the chief priests of Israel and the leaders of Israel, who believed that they had charge of Israel, 
reacted when the true king of Israel came on the scene, our Lord Jesus Christ, and how they envied him, and how they said, there's the heir, we will slay him. And now Saul finds his way into that line of wicked men who would slay the heir, and he shows himself to be a true son of Israel, a true son of Jacob, as he reacts to David, just like Israel's sons reacted to Joseph. And from that point, Saul is very wroth, and he decides that he would like to kill David. As the evil spirit of God comes upon him, Saul starts throwing a javelin toward David and tries to stick him to the wall with it. And David is from then on running from Saul, and the Lord was with David, and the Lord was not with Saul. And what a pathetic situation we have now as David's great victory proving himself to be the leader of Israel, uh, leads him to become odious to Saul, and we see the further demise of Saul as we see the further rise of David. Well, we see this ongoing pattern of Israel rejecting the one that God gives them, and Saul acting now as the people's king, now despises David. Now, the people love David. The common people love David. And maybe you say, well, that sounds like a conflict. You're saying that Saul is the people's king, and yet David is the people's choice. And I'll just remind you that the common people heard the Lord Jesus gladly, and the common people loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And they listened to him, and they were astonished at the way he spoke. They were astonished at his spiritual power. But in the hour of darkness, it was the leaders of those people, the leaders of the Jews, the house from the chief priests and the pharisaical leaders of the Sanhedrin and so forth, the leaders of the people acting at night in darkness and the power of darkness, led by Satan himself, who incarnated briefly in the man Judas, who hated the Lord Jesus Christ and and sought his crucifixion, demanded his crucifixion at the hands of Pilate. And so we have here that same thing going on. The common people love David. He's their hero. He's a man who conducts himself prudently. He's a man who conducts himself without any guile toward Saul. He loves Saul. Saul hates him. And now the Scripture says, Who can stand before envy? Nobody can. Saul keeps throwing this javelin at David while he's in Saul's presence. David flees and escapes, and now he runs away, and he comes to Samuel, and he tells Samuel all that Saul does. And then he finally, in his flight, and we won't go through all the details of his flight, but finally in his flight away from Saul, David runs and lives in the cave at Adullam. It says, David therefore departed thence. Actually, he goes to Achish of Gath, and he plays a madman there in order to escape Achish, uh, the king of Gath, who, by the way, from whom comes uh, Goliath, by the way. He's delivered from that. And then it tells us in 1 Samuel 22, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And this now is the sorry state of David as he escapes to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they came down thither to him. So here's David. He's the anointed one, but he has not assumed the kingship of Israel because a pretender is leading Israel now. This is Saul. And he hates David, and he's trying to kill David. 
And so this is now the time where David is anointed king, but he's not functioning as king. He is rejected. And this answers, of course, to the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is presently, he was born the king of the Jews. He was crucified the king of the Jews. Even Pilate knew that. Pilate told the Jews, Behold your king. And they said, Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And so they rejected the king, just as David is rejected. He's chased out by Saul, and he goes to a cave. Our Lord Jesus Christ uh, went into a cave. He was buried in a cave. He rose again from the dead, and he went to heaven. And in, in his rejection, during the time of his rejection... It tells us this in 1 Samuel 22 about David. During the time of his rejection, while he's in the cave of Dulam, and everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Now, you may want to say something like, these were the mighty men of David, but I'll tell you, the Bible doesn't say these are the mighty men of David. The Bible tells us these are men who are in distress, men who are in debt, men who are discontented. These are men all in trouble. They're bitter of soul. They're men who are realized that this present evil world is unfit for the people of God to live in, yet we're here. And they gather themselves to David in their sore distress. And let me tell you that that is what the church is. It is those called out to be gathered unto our Lord Jesus Christ in the time of his rejection. As the book of Hebrews says, let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach. And so, The church today, the church which is his body, are those Christians called out from the world, publicly identified together, and who publicly identify themselves with our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the church is. It is not some kind of happy, nice association of proud doers, but it is those who are in debt, everyone who is discontent, everyone who is in distress, We come to the Savior because we need him. And I'm not ashamed to say it. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because I needed a Savior. I didn't need a buddy. I needed a Savior. I needed somebody to save me from my sins and the consequences due to them. And this now is what God does. He calls out a bunch of losers, and he calls us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his presence, we are transformed from glory to glory by the renewing of our mind and the study of God's word. So here is David in his rejection with those who identify with him. And of course, David knows nothing better than to just conduct himself faithfully. And so from this place of rejection, he begins to fight the enemies of Israel. And I'll tell you, Christian brother, Christian sister, there is a spiritual war. Sure, we're defeated, rejected, we're we're sinners that gather to the Lord Jesus Christ, but he doesn't just nurse us, he puts us to war, just like David went to war 
while in the time of rejection. And when David is in the cave, and when he goes about fighting the enemies of Israel, indeed, at one point now, David comes under the protection of the king of Gath, and he's protected from Saul by the enemies of Israel. And maybe you find that to be unusual, but I can tell you that there are many times I have been protected personally. I have been protected from the wrath of Christians by unbelievers. Now, I I won't go into all the details about that, but I can assure you that it has happened, God in his sovereignty doing that when he has a disobedient people. And so David now goes about the battle, and finally he will become uh, the victorious king of Israel, showing himself faithful first before there's glory. And so we see now also a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and a picture of the life of faith insofar as before the glory there is the suffering. And with that, we'll just close with a song, and may God bless you until tomorrow. 